So this week it's Ezekiel chapter 11, 14 to 25, and it's about the regathering of Israel and the new covenant. So a bit of change of theme here. Instead of being dark and you know sin being judged, it's now talking about promises that God is giving to Israel. So I'll just pray. Father, thank you that you have blessed us with a new day. Lord, your mercies are new every morning. And Lord, we're going to see that today. Lord, though we don't deserve it, your blessings are new every morning. And so thank you that even though we might mess up, Lord, your forgiveness is there. Lord, you've already cleansed us. We just need to confess those sins and get back in fellowship. And we thank you for the ability to come boldly before the throne of grace. And that's what it is. It's the throne of grace where we can find grace to help in time of need. So we thank you for who you are and that you are a faithful God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. One of the attributes of God is that he is faithful. So don't forget that he is faithful. Let's do a memory verse. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Nice big voices. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So, there's multiple places where the new covenant is described and talked about in the Old Testament and there's Ezekiel 36 but there's also Ezekiel chapter 11. We'll get to it a bit later. What I'm going to do first is just do a bit of revision from last week and an application. So last week, we saw that one of the main themes in the book of Ezekiel is God's presence, his Shekinah glory, departing from the temple because of Israel's persistent sin. So God gives us blessings, but he will also take them away if we abuse them by turning those blessings into an idol. Now, what's an idol? Well, it's anything that we make that becomes more important than God. It could be a good thing, or it could be a sin. So for Israel, the temple had become more important than the God who dwelt in the temple. So much so that they continued to worship and offer sacrifices at the temple, basically in honor of the temple. <laughs> and it wasn't done for God anymore. It was all about ritual and routine, and for the majority of the people, it wasn't done because they loved God. And they were putting their trust in the temple building itself. So you could think about this. Well, God gave me this. It's kind of indestructible. This is going to last, because it's given by God. Now, there's another time in Israel's history where they substituted an object for a relationship with God. Back in the days of King Saul, they didn't have a temple, but they did have the Ark of the Covenant. And they, like the Israelites in Ezekiel's day, they treated the Ark of the Covenant like a lucky charm. They thought that as long as they had their lucky charm, they would be okay if they lived for themselves. I mean, after all, they had their genie, their benevolent genie. And all they had to do was go to the Ark of the Covenant and God would protect them and God would give them whatever they wanted. 
And that's kind of like how it became. So they were thinking that, you know, back in the days of Saul, surely if we have the Ark of the Covenant, which is given to us by God, that we'll be all right. And that's how the Israelites in the days of Ezekiel thought about the temple. And so there's a really good passage I'm going to read to you. It's a story. And it shows how the people had got their eyes so far from God and they had something else that they were worshipping as an idol, even though it was a good thing, but it had replaced their relationship with God. So 1 Samuel 4, 1-22. And again, the context is it's the days of Saul and they're fighting the Philistines. So it says this, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now remember, this is a covenant that they have broken. It's the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The whole name of this box tells us what it's all about, but they've forgotten. From Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So, what are they hoping to save them? It. It may save us. So that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. Remember the angels that were made of gold sitting on top of the mercy seat there. And the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, and they were corrupt priests, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. You see how much faith they had put in this box. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. Remember these pagan nations, they associated God with an idol. Okay, And so... They were thinking the ark was like their idol. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? (laughs) Remember, the ark of the covenant didn't exist when God delivered the people from Israel. Okay, That was built later. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines that you do not become servants of the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. Yet every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hopni, and Phinehas died. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line that same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat 
by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Again, the idol. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of all this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened, when he made mention of the ark of God, that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child, due to be delivered, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labour pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have born a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So, again, think of when the Shekinah glory of God left the temple, and then the temple was destroyed. That's what it was like for the Jews in Ezekiel's day. They put their hope in the temple building itself. So Ichabod, no glory and no hope. Eli trembled for the Ark of the Covenant, but he didn't tremble for the people's relationship with God. His sons were corrupt. They led the people astray. He didn't do anything about that. Why? Well, it says he was heavy. It means he was fat. And if you read the story, his sons would get the best of the meat and feed themselves, and they would have sex with the women outside of the temple, and basically the people were put off, that turned up their noses at God because of these corrupt priests. He was willing to enjoy and find his security and satisfaction in the blessings God gave without submitting to and trusting in the one who actually gave the gift. He was given the gift of being high priest in this position, He turned his back on God. So, the application for us today. Today we can rely on or put our trust in a friendship, a family, a preacher, a church, an organization, money and possessions, a career, all those things. But we need to learn the lesson that the Israelites teach us here. Anything that we put our faith in, aside from God, will eventually let us down. We should be thankful and appreciative for the things that God gives us, But it's a serious mistake to begin to put a trust in that thing, organization, or person. Because it's not if it fails or falls, it's when it fails or falls, okay? Nothing is solid, nothing is reliable except God. He is our rock, no one else. And when it does, our whole world would have fallen down because we've built our world on that thing, that family, that idol, whatever it is that we've built our life on. 
we'll be left with no hope and no glory. We'll then have to humble ourselves, repent, and do what God wanted us to do in the first place, which is trust Him. Then you will know that I am the Lord. That's the phrase we keep hearing in Ezekiel. And that's what God wants. That's what it means for us to trust Him, to know Him, to live for Him, to love Him. And that's God's plan for Israel the whole time. So that was just a wanted to emphasize this theme in the book of Ezekiel and how it applies to us. So now, in chapter 11, I've called this the regathering of Israel and the new covenant. So let's read verses 14 to 24. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem So note that, it's the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the ones who are still there just before the Babylonians are going to attack for the third time and destroy the city and the temple. So, about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, get far away from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, these are the people who have gone off in the first two captivities, And although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary, a little holy place for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples. Remember this is talking to the people who have already been taken from Jerusalem. I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they will go there, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there, that's the idols. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But for those whose hearts follow the desire of their detestable things, and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads says the Lord God. So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain which is on the east side of the city. Then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea or Babylon to those in captivity. And the vision that I had seen went up from me, so I spoke to those in captivity of all the things the Lord had shown me. So, the first part of the message is the unrepentant Jews still in Jerusalem think that they are the only ones accepted by God because they think they're so fortunate to be still left in Jerusalem where the temple of God is, you see. So let's just read those two verses, 14 and 15. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get far away from the Lord, this land has been given to us as a possession. So, here's this two teachings, the false teaching and the true teaching. The false prophets, the false teachers, are trying to get the people to believe that if you're in Jerusalem, you're going to be safe. We have the temple, everything's good. The true prophets, Ezekiel and Babylon and Jeremiah and Jerusalem, were faithful to share God's message, which is 
repent or face judgment. The message is still the same today, isn't it? Repent or face judgment, yeah? So God had told them through the prophet Jeremiah that he had taken the good figs, representing the righteous people, and examples, and we'll see this later, is Daniel and his friends, out of Jerusalem for their own protection and good. So they've taken the good people out of Jerusalem for their own protection because those left in Jerusalem, the unrepentant people, the bad figs, would be judged by the Babylonians. And you can read that parable in or that story in Jeremiah 24 because this is Jeremiah's answer to this thing where the people in Jerusalem think that we're the righteous people. All those other people must be bad because God took them away. Wrong. And Ezekiel, as we've been reading, has echoed the same message and acted it out, the siege and defeat of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. But what were the false prophets more concerned about? Well, they didn't want to offend people. They were concerned about their own reputation. And, (laughs) you know, if it was today, it would be how many likes they have on Facebook, right? And how much money they got. They want a good offering, so they don't want to say things that are going to offend people. You know? So what are they saying? Well, okay, God loves you. There's going to be a revival. God's going to protect us. And the best thing is, you don't have to change the way you are living. Think about it. How could a loving God judge people for their sin? And we have the temple. Everything's going to be just fine. Great message, but completely false. So these false prophets and false teachers were encouraging rebellion against God by telling the people to ignore the warnings of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They taught that the people who remained in Jerusalem were better, they were more spiritual or closer to God than the ones who had been taken captive. And so therefore God would keep them safe and they would, the ones still in Jerusalem, possess the land. And that's why they said, the land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore, they were telling those who believed Ezekiel's and Jeremiah's message, and the message being that Jerusalem will be conquered, to get out, to get far away from the Lord. We have the temple, we have the presence of God. If you believe their message, you get out. So if you believed what Jeremiah and Ezekiel said, you were rejected. And they're basically saying, get far away from the Lord. You're not spiritual like us. If you were spiritual, you'd believe what our false teachers were saying. (laughs) Of course, they wouldn't call them false teachers, would they? Our prophets. If you were spiritual, you'd believe our prophets, our teachers. So, what did Jeremiah say? He said that if you want to live, leave the city and surrender to the Babylonians. Jeremiah 38 verse 2. Because those who remain would face judgment. So this is a life and death decision for the people to make. Which prophet are you going to listen to? Which teaching are you going to listen to? Because one way or the other, one of them, one of those outcomes is going to be a bad outcome. And Clark says, These are the words of the inhabitants of Jerusalem against those of Israel who had been carried away to Babylon with Jeconiah. Go ye far from the Lord, but as for us, the land of Israel is given to us for a possession. We shall never be removed from it, and they, the people already taken captive, shall never return to it. That was what they were teaching. So, 
Do you understand the difference between the false message and the true message? A false message, if you're in Jerusalem, you're going to be safe. Everything's fine. And you're more spiritual. If you believe Jeremiah and Ezekiel, then you want to get out of Jerusalem because that's where the judgment is going to happen. And if you stay there, you'll be judged. Most likely die. So, the application. Appearances can be deceiving. And there are many people, I believe, today, following the same kind of logic. I could compare this to the prosperity gospel. Basically, it goes like this. If you are safe, healthy, and well-off, then it's evidence that God is blessing you and you're accepted by God. So can you relate that back to the people living in Jerusalem who have said that we have the temple, we have security, we're okay? It's the same lie that Job's friends kept on shoving down his throat. If you really are in right standing with God, if you have no unconfessed or hidden sin, then God wouldn't be letting bad things happen to you. Therefore, you must have sinned, if you only had more faith. Of course, Job hadn't sinned, and it was a divine test, and he passed it. And he did not give up on his integrity, he did not doubt God's goodness. So the false gospel is encapsulated or summarized so well in Revelation three seventeen to 19 The Laodicean church, the last day's church, Jesus says to them, he warns them, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. That's what the people in Jerusalem would have been saying. We've got it all. We've got the temple. We've got this strong city. What could go wrong? Jesus continues, And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Same message as Ezekiel. Same message as Jeremiah. So, there's many churches today that are later seen, boldly teaching this lie, this false gospel, the prosperity gospel, the come to Jesus so you will be blessed gospel. And like it was in Ezekiel's day, so it is today. It's a matter of life and death. Why? Because those who follow the false teachers will end up condemned because they never repented of their sins. The people living in Jerusalem never repented, you see. They didn't think they had to. They could go on worshipping at the temple, thinking everything's fine. And Jesus said that there would be many false converts. And Jesus' warning against these false converts fits in well with the message of today's modern churches the false churches, the prosperity churches. Not everyone who says to me, Matthew seven twenty-one to 23 not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So it's about repentance and obedience. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Focusing on experiences and the supernatural. And I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And what it means is there was never true repentance. So don't chase experiences. Wonders in your name. Casting out demons, prophesying. 
Many of those people who are doing those things today, not all, but many are not saved. It says right here. Now, if you still need to be convinced that material blessing is not necessarily a definite proof of God's favor, just read Psalm 73. And you will find that in contrast to the life of the wicked, which is often quite good, the life of the righteous is usually characterized by discipline and chastening. Why? Because God is dealing with us as sons. If he doesn't deal with us as sons, it means we're not his sons. He's doing the work of sanctification in us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, application. What does this mean for us and how do we share the gospel? So, for the true believer, there will eventually come persecution as we take a stand for the truth and go against our ungodly culture. So, I've got a few verses to read here. 2 Timothy 3, 10-12. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. Sounds good so far. This is Paul's life, right? And then he continues in verse 11. Persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. And here's an awesome promise in verse 12. I bet no one's got this on their wall. Okay. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Who's got that promise on their wall? James 4.4 It says, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. You can live like the world and the world will accept you. If you live for Christ, you will be rejected, eventually. John 15, 18 to 20. If the world hates you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you are no longer part of the world. You are a new creation. You are a child of God. And Jesus continues, I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. So, how do they persecute Christ? (laughs) False trial, beating, pulled his beard out, crucifixion. So, when someone shows interest in becoming a Christian, we need to be honest with them. We need to let them know that it's going to cost them. Cost them what? Their life. And it might be literally, in many countries, it literally might cost them their life. They need to know that life will get harder in many ways. They need to know that they must be willing to say no to many things that the world considers normal and good. Then to turn away from the world, turn away from sin. 
as a believer, we will face ridicule, persecution, rejection, and opposition. But it's going to be worth it in the end. Romans 8.18 says, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. So, what did Jesus say? We must make the choice to repent and follow him. But before we do that, we must first sit down and count the cost of being his disciple. It will, after all, require us to be willing to forsake all. And you can see Luke 14, 25-33 for Jesus teaching on what it's going to cost you to become a follower of him. So, what does it mean to repent? Well, we make following Jesus, loving and obeying him, our number one priority. And that's what it means to make Jesus our Lord or Master and our Saviour. So when you're sharing the gospel, be honest. Tell people it's going to cost you a lot. You're going to give up a lot. But you have a lot to gain too. Not just eternal life, but relationship with God. Now, the second part of this passage is in verse 16. And I've titled this, God keeps his promise to never leave us nor forsake us. You'll find that in Hebrews 13.5. Now, what does this do? Well, this is meeting our greatest need, which is himself. God keeping his promise to never leave us nor forsake us is meeting our greatest need, which is himself. We don't need what he gives us, we need him. That's what it's all about, is being connected to Christ. It's being in Christ. Who cares what you do or don't have? All right, let's read verse 16. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. So, now God is correcting through Ezekiel this false teaching that those in Jerusalem were the goodies, the more spiritual people, the people who God had was showing favour to. And God is saying, no. I cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. So what God is saying here, it's actually those who were taken captive by the Babylonians in the first two captivities They're the ones that have found favour with him. They're the ones who are walking with him, who are going to end up walking with him. So, by his Shekinah glory departing from the temple, God had deserted the people in Jerusalem, the proud, rebellious, religious hypocrites in Jerusalem. But he had made his presence available to the captives who were scattered among the nations And it's in a much more personal and glorious way. This is so much better than having the temple. We're going to go through an example soon to show that. But there's a really important application here. It says in verse 16 that, Yet I should be a little sanctuary, a little holy place, for them in the countries where they have gone. And so the application for us is this. And it's really important. The evidence of God's grace or favour is that his presence would be with them wherever they went, and it wasn't based on their external circumstances. So, as long as we choose to draw near to God, he will draw near to us, James 4.8. 
And that promise applies in any circumstances. Good or bad? <laughs> the disciples, remember, they were in the boat, and the boat was filling with water. Let's read that story. Matthew 8, 18-27, selected verses. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he instructed his disciples to cross to the other side of the lake. So, what's that? Any command is also a promise, yeah? Like God commanded Paul, you're going to Rome. So, there's also a promise that you will go to Rome, yeah? God's commands are also his promises. If he's telling us to do something, he's also going to give us the ability to do it. So, let's read what happened. Then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly, a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Jesus responded, Why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they asked, even the wind and the waves obey him. So, how would you be? <laughs> you're a follower of Jesus, you're his disciple. He says, let's get in the boat, let's go across the lake. Okay, let's do it. Remember, they're following Jesus' command to get into the boat and go across to the other side of the lake. But, they end up, put yourself in their shoes, you end up almost losing your life in this storm. That's how it appears. The reality is that because Jesus was in the boat with them, because his presence was with them, they could not have been safer. So despite appearances to the contrary, they could not have been safer. And God will use circumstances for his glory and for our growth and sanctification. So again, to summarize what we've been talking about, God has already removed his presence or favor from the temple in Jerusalem, from the people in Jerusalem. But... The Jews living there still thought that everything was all okay because the temple was still standing there. For a little while longer anyway, yeah? But the presence of God was gone from the temple. And so what was their hope? Well, it was an empty hope. It's like being in the desert and being really thirsty and seeing mirage of water. That's all it is, it's mirage. It's an empty hope. So I'd rather be tossed around in a boat with Jesus on board than having a perfect sailing trip without him. Why? <laughs> because only one boat will reach the destination. And that is the boat with Jesus in it. The prosperity gospel and not just that, but the traditional ritualistic religion, they promise a smooth ride but you'll be quite disappointed with the actual destination when you get there. Because you won't be heaven, it'll be hell. It's the gospel of grace, which promises a rough ride, but also guarantees that you have reached your destination, which is heaven. So you can seek a good life now, or you can seek a good life later, in heaven, for eternity, but you can't have both. Are you willing to give up your life? So you can find it. Verse 16 also says, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. And a quote from David Guzik, 
help summarize this. We know from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 24, the parable of the good and bad figs, that Jews who remained in Jerusalem and who had not yet been carried off to exile consider themselves superior to those who had been taken. Here, God spoke well of those already exiled, saying though he had cast them far off, he had not forsaken them. So you can be going through hard circumstances, but it does not mean that God has forgotten about you or forsaken you. He's with you in those circumstances. That's the promise here. I love it. Yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. And so God is promising to sustain them. This is the practical application. He's promising to sustain his people while they were in exile. The Babylonian invasion would not be the end of Israel as it was for several other nations. That was it. He wiped them out and they were no more. So, yeah, up till now, Ezekiel's prophecy has been dark. It's all about sin and it's been sometimes tough going. But now, it's like the sun is shining through the clouds. It's awesome. God, in the middle of this judgment, in the middle of their sinfulness and hard-heartedness, is giving them a hope beyond their wildest dreams. And just to help us understand this, I've got some quotes of different people. For the period of their absence from the land and the earthly temple, he would be their sanctuary. That's Morgan. Another one from Locke. This statement is without parallel in the Old Testament. So that he would be their little sanctuary, their holy place. This statement is without parallel in the Old Testament. The sanctuary was normally conceived of as a cult site or a building rendered sacred by the presence of the deity. Here Yahweh promises to be for the exiles what the temple has heretofore been for them in Jerusalem. And another one from Maya. Away from the outward ordinances and the material edifice, the exiles would find more than the equivalent in God himself. He would give them the reality of which there had been the outward and visible emblems. So I just want to focus on the start of that quote. It says the exiles would find more than the equivalent in God himself, more than what it was at the temple. Yeah, the Shekinah glory is gone from the temple, but God gave them something better, a guarantee of his presence to each individual wherever they were. Now, practical example of this, a real example of this, how it worked and why it's so glorious, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They were taken captive in the first deportation in 605 BC. And they prove that what God is saying is true. Okay? That those he had sent away, he was going to look after and his presence would be with them. That he would be a little sanctuary, a holy place for the captives while they were in exile. Where they went, he would also be. Now, this applies to us today, yeah? Remember Hebrews 13.5? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, Nebuchadnezzar made the big statue, the huge golden statue, after his dream. And he commanded that everyone bow down to the statue. Okay, we're talking about having to say no to the world. This is a picture of that. They said, no, we're not bowing down to your statue, Mr. Nebuchadnezzar, or King Nebuchadnezzar. And the story is told in Daniel chapter 3 verses 22 to 30 
Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counsellors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counsellors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. So, our circumstances, they have no power over us. Okay, With the presence of God with us, we don't need anything else and we can go through any circumstance. All it's going to do is burn our bonds off us and the things that we are tripping over and you know struggling with are going to be burnt away as we go through suffering and we will be free and experiencing fellowship with God to a greater degree than if the circumstance, the hard times, hadn't come upon them. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar gives testimony of God. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve or worship any god except their own god. What does that remind you of? In the verse in the New Testament? Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, brethren, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. I literally did that. And it started with verse 2 in Romans 12, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Therefore I make, verse 29 in Daniel, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So, it's not always going to turn out like that, but sometimes it will. Sometimes the circumstances, you'll suffer and then God will exalt you and raise you up because of your witness. Sometimes you might get killed, you might lose your job, you know, you don't know what's going to happen, but it doesn't matter. As long as Jesus is on board, you're good. Until our work on earth is finished, we are indestructible. Remember that. The devil can do all he wants, but if you're walking with the Lord and you're Trusting in him, until your work on earth is finished, you are indestructible. 
And I've just been reading in Acts in my personal study. Paul, Jesus appeared to him and said, Paul, it's okay, don't be afraid. You will stand before Caesar. Again, God's command is God's promise. And so from that point on, Paul was bold. And he knew that nothing was going to stop him from standing before Caesar. Because God had given the command, which is also his promise. And then he was bold to talk to people, to kings, and he knew he was going to be safe from the Jews who wanted to kill him. Now the third part of this passage in Ezekiel chapter 11 is verses 17 to 21. And this is God's promise to restore Israel to the land and renew them spiritually. So let's read verses 17 to 21. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. What's this the opposite of? The people of Jerusalem saying, we're going to get the land of Israel. We're not going to be judged. We're going to be safe. The exiles, ah, God doesn't like you anymore. You've been taken. No. And I will give you the exiles the land of Israel. Verse 18. And they will go there and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. That's the idols that clean it up from idol worship. Then I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts follow the desire of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. A quote from David Guzik, thus says the Lord God, this phrase, the Lord God, the declared message from Adonai Yahweh, Lord God, is commonly used in Ezekiel more than 200 times. It gives special attention to Yahweh's status as Master and Lord over his covenant people. So as a believer, and we confess Jesus as being our Lord, that's what it means. He's our Master. He's the boss. We must be in submission to him. Verse 17, I will gather you from the peoples. So here's the second promise. The first promise we learned about was God being a little sanctuary for the Jews while in exile. They would experience his presence while in exile. The second promise is that God would give them the land of Israel. God promised to bring them back into the land after 70 years had passed from the first captivity. That's Jeremiah 29 verse 10. And as we learned last week, God shows mercy in judgment. Did they deserve this promise? No, they didn't deserve it at all. The nation of Israel has been rebellion against God since their uh, formation. Now, here's another application for us. Who did God give the land to? <laughs> it's the land of what? Palestine? Or, no, it's the land of Israel, right? I will give you the land of Israel. God calls it the land of Israel. And a quote from Feinberg. The gathering is to be by divine direction and from all lands and countries of their dispersion. And the promise is unequivocal. I will give you the land of Israel. The Jews. Is it not pointless then to speak now as though the land of promise may belong to the Arabs or Israel? When did God reverse his land grant? <laughs> So that's just a quote, and it just brings out this thing that 
the modern day thing about this two-state solution. Look, it belongs to the Jews. The West Bank, Judea and Samaria, it all belongs to them. It was given to them by God. And he said, I will bring you back. Guess what? Isaiah 11, 11 says, I will bring you back the second time. Guess what he's done? In our day and age, he's brought them back the second time. It's the land of Israel for the Jews. Verse 18, they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations. So this is God predicting and promising that the people of Israel, when they went back, would clear the land of idols. They would not worship idols anymore. And so this time of exile, as God said it would be, was a time of cleansing for the people. And so it was good. It was difficult, but it was good. What's God's purpose and discipline? To cleanse us and make us partakers of his holiness, right? Hebrews 12.10. And history shows that this is exactly what happened. God's intended purpose prevailed. Israel never again had a problem with worshipping idols. And verses 19 and 20. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So, remember last week we talked about, in wrath, remember mercy. How God always shows mercy, even when he is judging. So, these promises are completely undeserved. It's all grace. So instead of the nation being wiped out, which they deserve to be, if God was completely fair and gave them exactly what they deserved, they'd be wiped out. But he didn't. He didn't treat them as they deserved, as we read last week. God instead lays out or reveals, he promises them a glorious and eternal future. And David Guzik says, As God gives promises concerning the restoration of the nation of Israel, he begins to describe the greater work of restoration that is a part of the new covenant. And there's several verses you can look up there. So in these verses, we're going to see four features of the new covenant in verses 19 and 20. The first one is, I will give them one heart. Israel gathered together again. So that's what it means. Then I'll give them one heart. They had been divided into north and south, Israel versus Judah. Northern kingdom with the southern kingdom, but God is saying that when you come back, you'll be one heart, you'll be one nation. And in another part, I think it was Jeremiah, had two sticks, he put them together, there'd be a reunification of the two kingdoms. And the second part of the new covenant is, I will put a new spirit within them, I'll give them a heart of flesh. This is a spiritual transformation. The third part, as a result of that, they may walk in my statutes, and the law is written on the heart. It becomes what they want to do, not what they have to do. They should be my people, and I will be their God. And this speaks of Israel's special relationship with God. They will always be his people. So let's just go through the covenants. Through the word of God, we see the plan of redemption described or laid out or revealed through a series of covenants. So. The first one is the Abrahamic covenant. And this was promised to Abraham and his covenant descendants. And what it promised was a land, a nation, and to be a blessing 
to all the nations. Genesis 12, 1-3. Then there was a Mosaic covenant, and that's the law, the sacrifices, and the choice of blessing or curse. Exodus 19. Then we have the Davidic covenant, and this promised an everlasting destiny, a perfect ruler, and the promised Messiah. And you can see 2 Samuel 7. And now we come to the new covenant. So, a quote here from David Guzik again. God's plan of redemption through the covenants is completed and perfected in the new covenant. Over the span of Old Testament passages that announce the new covenant, we see promises of gathered Israel, one heart, of cleansing and spiritual transformation, new spirit, heart of flesh, of new and real relationship with God, they shall be my people and I will be their God and the reign of the Messiah. And verse 21 says, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads. So the promise of coming restoration is a part of the new covenant, but it's not universalism. Okay, Universalism is a belief that everyone's going to be saved. That doesn't matter. All roads lead to God. That's not right. Okay. A part of the new covenant is that those who don't believe will be judged. That doesn't change. For those who follow the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, they will be judged for their sins. Now we get to the next section, which is the departure of the glory of the Lord. This is kind of the finish of what we did last week. So I'll just quickly summarize it. So 22 and 23. So the cherubim lift up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain which is on the east side of the city. the Mount of Olives. So, one of the main themes, the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. A big thing for the nation of Israel. And in this section of prophecy, chapters 8 through 11, this is one of the main themes. God's Shekinah glory mounts up or goes above the chariot throne and disappears from the city. So remember that it started in the temple above the mercy seat, moved to the door of the temple, then moved to the east gate, and now it's going right out of Jerusalem. And it's pausing at the Mount of Olives on the east side of the city. And as we talked about last week, it's kind of like a picture of God, you know, I don't really want to go. This is painful for me to have to reject my people, to have to judge my people. And we saw that Jesus sorrowed over the coming judgment of Jerusalem in his day, in Matthew 23, 37. Now, part 5, the last section here, verses 24 and 25. Then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea or Babylon to those in captivity. And the vision that I had seen went up from me, so I spoke to those in captivity all the things the Lord had shown me. So verse 24, Then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to those in captivity. And the vision I had seen went up from me. So in his vision, Ezekiel now goes back to Chaldea or Babylon, and this is the end of this vision. So chapter 11 is the end of this vision which started in chapter 8. And verse 25, so I spoke to those in captivity all the things the Lord had shown me. So, Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew 10, verse 7 and 8, 
He gives this principle, freely you have received, freely give. So we are to come to the Word of God, both in our personal devotions, in our conversation with each other, in church, Bible study, whatever it might be, and we freely receive the Word of God. We freely receive the truth. And then, what do we do? Freely give. Matthew 10, verses 7 and 8. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So they've been around Jesus all this time, and they've been receiving, receiving. Oh, this is great. You know, we get to hear from Jesus himself. But Jesus, okay, now it's time for you to share what you've learned. So that's what we need to do too. Ezekiel took what he had seen, what he'd heard, and he started sharing this with all the people in Babylon who had been taken captive. So just remember this. God doesn't reveal things to us so that we can go, wow, aren't I clever, or isn't that great? But so that we can become his vessels to share his truth with others. And we are Christ's ambassadors. And what's the message as ambassadors of Christ? Second Corinthians 5, 20-21. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So remember, we are ambassadors for Christ. We have the gospel message. It's time to share it. Father, we thank you for what we've learnt today. We thank you that you are merciful. And Lord, you have given the nation of Israel these awesome promises. The new covenant was given to them in their darkest hour when they were at the peak of their rebellion. Thank you for demonstrating your grace here, Lord, when you give us good things when they're so undeserved. Help us to understand that our salvation is undeserved too. We could never ever be good enough. It was when we were enemies that you loved us and demonstrated that love by dying for us. Father, thank you for your heart toward us. Thank you that you are a loving God and that in wrath you remember mercy. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.